this week on the Eldritch Lorecast. Do you have a favorite magic item that you've either designed or used? The Earthboard, which is like a surfboard for earthbenders. It also lets you just travel around while T-posing, which is always a good thing for an item. Enchanting Emporiums! It is live right now. (laughs) Would it be fair to just kind of reveal some of the hidden lore of the first book? Yeah, please. Sean Merwin, Stealth released a product. It's called Peril in Pinebrook. It's a small starter adventure. Yeah, it's not for you. D&D, that's three letters. It's a lot easier to type in and remember than TTRPG. Tabletop role-playing game really does not roll off the tongue very well. Been an update on the deck of uh, many things. How big a role has crafting played? in your game. All that and more right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lorecast, the number one tabletop RPG podcast in all the realms. That's right. Even across the Marvel multiverse, they're listening to the Eldritch (laughs) Lorecast when they want to find out about RPGs. Doctor Strange sitting there with his headphones in. Uh, listening to my voice right now. My name is Ben Byrne, by the way. I am joined by James Hake, Dale Kingsmill. And this week, coming from deep Eldritch Lorecast history, uh, <laughs> Logan Reese, a.k.a. Runesmith, returning to the Eldritch Lorecast. Welcome back, Logan. All the way back from the Bronze Era, and I've brought with me uh, Nilbog the Cat. He's the newest <laughs> member of the family, and he yes. likes to stand on my shoulders. That's goblins. You are the Eldritch Lore. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Oh, the, the Eldritch lore of the Lorecast. Um, I have no doubt anybody listening to this uh, podcast has probably seen your YouTube channel before, but just for the sake of anybody who's coming in fresh, uh, where might people know you from? <laughs> uh, they might know me from YouTube, where I run the channel RuneSmith. I'm the you know writer, editor. I do everything there. Uh, it's mostly, I think I could say it's focused on monsters in D&D, like sort of some gripes with them, you know, um, how to put them in a campaign, what the basics are for people who don't know and don't want to read the book, uh, and just general like writing help for people who are doing, you know, books because I work with um, Ghostfire under the mm-hmm. epitaph, I think you could say, um, Eldermancy, where it's the little universe I'm working in and the books that I build are all part of that. So you might have seen some stuff from there. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Twisted Taverns, Stills Codex of Companions, Sunken Isles, mm-hmm. uh, all your brainchilds. That's like the, brain the current roster. Yeah. The um, <laughs> things that fall like rotten apples from my head. <laughs> That's quite the analogy. Um, uh, all right. Well, to kick this off, I do have a quick question Ooh. for you, which is, um, you know, as a, as a game designer or a GM homebrewing or maybe a player, uh, do you have a favorite magic item that you've either designed or used uh, or seen used uh, in uh, your tabletop games? The first one that came to mind, I had to look it up again to see what it did. But for um, (laughs) Fool's Gold, the Bellowing Wilds book that they did, they let me design a little extra magic item. And it's a a wax knight that stands as a candle. And every time you light it, it'll grow and it'll defend your camp or fight for you. And it shrinks every time you use it until it just gets snuffed out. It's a fun little (laughs) idea. That or the backpack full of sharks. (laughs) <laughs> I'm a big fan of the backpack full of sharks. That in seems the like the, the opposite of when Batman had his 
<laughs> bat shark repellent. That's that's what that is. <laughs> bat shark repellent. That's the the one yeah. thing the villain never expects. Or the GM's like, oh, okay, I've got to have at least one villain with shark repellent. Yes. Uh, Dale Kingsmill, what about yourself? What's a magic item you have designed, or maybe one that you've used? I I'm sure that I have on some level or another uh, stolen every magic item I've ever designed from a concept from somewhere else. So I don't know uh, where I will have gotten this one from. But one of my favorites to throw in is just. A coin that is, it does have two sides, but every time you flip it, it lands on the opposite side from what it did last time. It's just right. a fun little oh, thing, right? Yeah. Like it's not game breaking, but you can use it. It's, I don't know, it's a, a fun, cute little thing. Uh, and then other than that, I think my baser instincts are uh, always excited when I add into the game like a gravity hammer from Halo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Just give it to the I, I do love a gravity hammer. I love gravity in general being used as like a, a thing. I designed uh, recently, um, I don't even think, I think it's it's an actual thing from the Adventure Tomb of Annihilation where there's like a gauntlet inside of a uh, tomb, uh, inside of a mine. It's like a dwarven gauntlet and like badge of office. But I don't think it's a magic item in the actual adventure. It's just like a thing that you can call a MacGuffin that you can give to another NPC. And I was like, this should be a magic item. And I think I just gave it a bunch of Dunamancy spells because I wanted it to feel like uh, the Infinity Gauntlet, but just you click and gravity gets really heavy yeah. around you. Or you like, <laughs> you know, close your fist and everything gets pulled towards you suddenly or pushed away or whatever. I really liked that idea. Um, James, hey, what about yourself? Something that you've designed, something that you've played with? Yeah, so when I was doing Taldore Reborn, uh, there are a handful of elemental based magic items for the Ashari cultures in there. And this is where I qualify this by saying, whenever I write something, my brain basically sticks it in a filing cabinet and forgets about it. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I, when you asked this question, I was like, I've got no idea. Uh, so I will pop open Teldori Reborn right next to me and like, look in there (laughs) and if i didn't design this item apologies to whoever did because i literally cannot remember but i do think i did (laughs) like it's 60 percent sure um my my favorite of all of these uh is the earth board which is like a surfboard for earthbenders um (laughs) which is just my favorite mental image of some big burly earth genasi like rolling in through the grand canyon towards you surfing on solid rock it's just such a fun like it's a character interaction beat in a magic mm, item yeah and i love it it also lets you just travel around while tea posing which is always a good thing for an item <laughs> <laughs> yeah i do i think the 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 favorite magic items i've designed are ones with a story around them i i, I tend mm. to over design magic items not necessarily what they do but just what they um mm, like why uh, they you, exist. you know trying to think why they exist yeah, yeah exactly um and like one of them was uh, a, a lycanthrope dagger and the idea was that it was carved from the femur of a lycanthrope or something so it counted as silvered and it did 2d4 damage it wasn't plus one it had no other benefits so it was again very simple but it had this feeling that a it was carved from a creature and b um actually did more damage than a longsword at least one-handed most did did it get big and furry on the full moon (laughs) 
And could it spread the <laughs> no. lycanthropy curse if you stab <gasps> somebody with it? That'd be that'd be neat. That'd be cool. Neither of those things uh, <laughs> it did, but I very much like that second one. Yes, I think that is a very cool idea. Okay, um, all right. That it can be used. All right, don't, don't take it personally, Dale. Jeez, we're, we're all friends here. It's all right because <laughs> you've got bad ideas sometimes. <laughs> you know, we all have them from time to time. <laughs> they all come out. Um, no, I'm just kidding. There's no such thing as bad ideas, as I used to say when I was running drama workshops. Oh, I've been in drama workshops. There are definitely bad ideas. <laughs> yeah, but you can't say that as the lecturer, especially when you're teaching 11-year-olds. You can't be like, the choo-choo train that runs on That's licorice it. tracks? No. That's a great idea, Ben. <laughs> that statement is for encouragement, not quality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of great ideas... It- Enchanting Emporiums, Woo-hoo! or the Seeker's Guide to Enchanting Emporiums. Um, it is live right now, <laughs> uh, and you can click the link. Uh, Logan, I reckon you're going to be where Sean usually is. So if you point directly upwards, uh, right that is where there. the link will be. Right there. That's where you can get it. <laughs> That's where you can find out all about Enchanting Emporiums, or you can keep listening um, uh, because this this. James, why don't you why don't you lead us through Enchanting Emporiums, the, the, this collaboration between uh, a, a bunch of different creators in the space? The Seeker's Guide to Enchanting Emporiums is a book filled with magic item shops and shopkeepers. It's full of magic items, yes, but more importantly than that, it's about the locations and people behind the magic items. Uh, if, if you were to take all the magic item pages in the book, it would probably be about, a I don't know, a, a quarter of the book just off the top of my head. And it's all styled. So I, I have this dream of someone getting the PDF and printing it out like a Sears catalog of magic items <laughs> that you can hand to your player characters because it's it's designed to be unified, all those item pages. Well, I've got good but, news for you. If I can just quickly interject. Go. There is a pledge tier that has the magic item cards and there's, uh, I believe, a pledge tier that also has like a folio that you can put the cards into. So your yes. your Sears catalog dream uh, will be possible for backers. Shoot, yes. I got to back this project. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a collaboration between Ghostfire Gaming and some of our people here who work for the company, like me and and Ben, who have created shops and wandering merchants for the book, but also a ton of just incredible designers and personalities from across the RPG sphere, right? We've got Logan in because uh, of course we have to, the seeker is gracing (laughs) the cover with their visage and indeed a shop full of planar creatures that you can uh, buy like a pet shop to have these arcane cosmic creatures be traveling with you and your party. But also folks like Ginny D, who is a, uh, you know, a remarkably good designer. Uh, she blew me out of the water when I worked with her because like, I, I know her as a personality and, and a cosplayer and, you know, a, a partner with Critical Role and stuff like that. But she's got design chops, man. Uh, her, the hedgerow, which it feels very nice to me as a uh, a houseplant lover is sort of a fey houseplant shop. <laughs> uh, that would be right up your alley. It's I just right up my alley. We, we geeked out in our first interaction of like, because uh, c- when I talked with her on call, she had a huge sort of array of plants behind her and I was like Spider-Man pointing memes. Like, okay, I know exactly <laughs> what we have to do right now. Jenny, you need to make a shop full of plants and plant-based magic items. And she really delivers. I mean, it, it ranges from as simple as uh, an enchanted melon rind that you can wear as a helmet 
the uh, the melon for your melon, um, all the way up to you know armor that is woven from slithering vines that sort of shift to protect you from blows and grow mm. thorns as you uh, receive attacks and stuff like that. Ben, I think you and I should talk a little bit about the merchants that we have on display because we we get to dig into or or you get to dig into, I should say, some of Ghostfire's own settings. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was super exciting to uh, bring in you know some some of our other settings. I mean, obviously we've got the Seeker coming back. Uh, and bringing that that in uh, a twisted taverns kind of flavor, we're throwing in a little bit of grim hollow, and yeah, it was fun for me uh, with Professor von Kufen. He's a traveling trader like Blackbird is, so he doesn't have a full shop. But the idea is, you know, sometimes when the players can't get to town or they can't get to somewhere where you want to place a shop, you can just have a merchant kind of run into them on the road or in a dungeon or something like that. Um, and so the idea is that von Kufen, Professor uh, Terence Myron von Kufen. Uh, I probably should have added the third or something to the end of his <laughs> name. Um, is this traveling, uh, 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 what did we call it? Magizoologist, expert yes. in monster remains and how to turn the advantages of monsters against them and craft items out of, uh, monster remains. Um, and I got to dig a little bit into, I went back to the campaign guide, the Grim Hollow campaign guide and kind of dug in there. I, I, I teased this last time we talked about this that, uh, keen eyed Grim Hollow fans might note some callbacks to the campaign guide that are mixed into Professor von Kufen's lore to try to make it feel, you know, in, in a relatively small amount of space, um, uh, as connected and as fleshed into Grim Hollow as possible. But at the same time, you could probably drop von Kufen into any campaign that you're running, you know, and just have this affable professor rock up in the middle of a dungeon because he's trying to milk spiders for venom and he's gotten stuck in the web and he's like, oh dear, I seem to have gotten myself a bit stuck. I need some help, please. Um, he's sort of Volo-ish, I suppose. Um, but as opposed to Volo, who's an idiot, uh, <laughs> Professor von Kufen is, yeah. is quite intelligent. Uh, uh, Ben's hatred of Volo knows no bounds. (laughs) (laughs) And furry daggers too, for that matter. Sort Um, of like a Livingston-esque character. Yeah, 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 exactly. Logan, Um, I want to hear about the Seeker. I want to hear you talk about your character, the cover-gracing Seeker. The Seeker is a really interesting character because when the first book came out, um, their whole personality and their whole nature and their reason for bringing everything to, um, you know, everyone else's universes, all their campaigns, dropping all these uh, taverns into these locations was very underhanded. So no one actually knew who the Seeker was or what they were after. They uh, just come off as this really proud, very energetic uh, entertainer who just always wants to be there, wants to see the trouble happen and wants to see how other people (laughs) figure it out and come out the other end. Because, you know, no skin off their neck. They can go anywhere. They can do anything, especially with the help of their new companion, Gugu, who sits on their shoulder like Nilbog sits on mine. Um, And I I think, would it be fair to just kind of reveal some of the hidden lore of the first book? Yeah, 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 totally. Okay. I, I didn't even realize a lot of this was in there until yeah, uh, I think it was Nick was telling stuff. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I remember the the finish line for this little um, Easter egg hunt that was both in the book and online. I have a video that's at the very end of it, or it's like the final step, and only 30-something people have actually gotten that far. I can see the number of views to see how many people actually figured out the whole puzzle. Um, 
But the answer at the end of it is that the seeker is a deity, one of uh, six or seven from essentially a dead universe. And in order to escape and survive, they are planting themselves and all the other deities and everyone else's universes and settings to survive. So they're like, if a deity was a leech and they're finding their way into other realities to keep living and keep living. But the seeker specifically, their domain is drama. It's war, it's action. So they're this dramatic, uh, pompous character who's excited to see everything happen and see these adventurers go on adventures regardless of how they turn out. So sort of a a cheeky little, not necessarily well-intentioned, but definitely (laughs) fun-loving character. Yeah, wow. And so now the Seeker has this sort of combination pet shop slash penitentiary for cosmic (laughs) threats. It was uh, a lot of fun to design that whole idea where you came at me and you said, like, let's do a pet shop. And I was like, well, what if you needed a pet shop? Like you had to go out and collect all these things and keep them contained in one area. And then um, after having them for so long, sort of like a it reminds me a lot of um, the Lilo and Stitch series where (laughs) it was so bad. I rewatched it recently, but as a kid, I loved it. The TV series. Oh my God. Yeah. I hung on to every episode. Every afternoon was that show. Um, So the idea is all these cosmic threats or these strange anomalies that should be kept up, kept locked up like an SCP situation. Um, You have them like, oh, well, let's repurpose them. Let's maybe put them on an adventure and see if it works, if I can occupy them instead of having to watch all of these criminal creatures. And that's where the pet shop angle comes out. In my mind, uh, when it started, I had this seed of an idea that's like pet shaming when people go on Reddit and post their pet looking, looking sad with a little note they're holding up. (laughs) I (laughs) ate all of my owner's steak filet, but it's like that for a cosmic, for like Galactus. Yeah. Like these creatures have committed horrible atrocities, but it looks like a little kitten and (laughs) you can feed it snacks. (laughs) I do love the, the, I laughed so much and paused it when I was watching the cinematic trailer and the seeker closes the door on the cat and then pops out a portal. Just the look, it's very simple animation, but just the look on the cat's face killed me. I thought that was absolutely hilarious as as just this glum, like, how dare you? How dare you shut me away? I like that. And the casual nature of Gugu, the little creature on their shoulder, just because he's the one who makes the portals, you know, his ability is that he can cast gate at any time. Um, so he just spins his arms around and then he's just sitting there and he's like, yeah, we're going somewhere. I don't know. I picked it, but we're about to find out. (laughs) (laughs) This kind of gets into the idea that all of these merchants, whether they have a full shop or whether they're a slightly more condensed, uh, wandering merchant, they all have quests that they can send you on. There's full on quests that are kind Mm. of detailed, like a little, uh, quest hook for a, uh, GM to flesh out. Uh, you'll see stuff like that in, in our Valica book as well. Um, but there are also in shop events too. And I, I'm a really big fan of all of the quests and events that go on in the seekers shop, because there's just so much room for chaos and cosmic weirdness that goes mm-hmm. on there. The, uh, the whole idea, even with the very first, cause the quests are more hooks than the events, which are kind of like contained adventures. And the first one is just, let's go hunting where you just go and find this like problem or this cosmic horror. And the seeker's like, I need that in a bag by like 
three o'clock. <laughs> it's like, go get it. Because <laughs> that's kind of the thing. That it's, it's a philosophy towards making game products that... Uh, that I try to infuse in the projects that I that I lead here at Ghostfire, and that everyone who's worked on this book has really like cottoned onto really strongly, and it's that GMs need openness in their structure, yeah. right? Experienced GMs like to have a little prompt that they can hang their own creativity on. But also, if I bought a game for sixty dollars, I I don't always want them to say, and now you figure it out, right? Mm, you want to yeah. have some element of, of solidness to what you're creating. And so having some quests that are more like kind of well fleshed out hooks and others that are like, okay, now here's an encounter that happens in the shop. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like it gives sort of a demonstrable quality to the book that people can really latch onto. What's one of the events that happens in the shop there? I really like the idea just to build on what you're saying. Um, you want to balance like the whole time you're writing the book, just through all the flesh and bones. You want to make sure there is that level of engagement where you're not just telling them everything that's happening. You're giving the GM a chance to open up, but you're not just walking them down a path and then ending up at a cliff. And they're like, okay, where do I go from here? And it's like, well, you figure it out. It's like, uh, mm. <laughs> I bought um, the book, man. I, Really think I like, it's a very basic one. It's probably the simplest event out of the few that are in the book, but definitely uh, just the security breach, which is just <laughs> an event where some, one of them, I think, slips out. It's designed by how it functions. Uh, oh, it's the void hamster trio called cannonballs. It's three hamsters who can, I think, teleport or turn into bullets and they just <laughs> jut out of their cage and start slamming around and opening all these uh, other containments, containing units. And that's while you're being walked through by the seeker. And the seeker's like, uh oh, help. <laughs> Everything's getting out right now, real quick. I may be a deity, but I, uh, you know, I'm not that strong these days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, they're a very confined deity. They're not all powerful, especially considering the fact that where they come from is dead. They don't have enough belief juice to power them. More or less, yeah. Juice. Right now, they're making sure they can sustain themselves. Then they're going to get into that empowering territory. <laughs> you know, I spoke about this last week, how much Anna Pantsu's voice just adds to the speaker, how much character she mm-hmm. injects into. Yeah. Is that the voice you now hear when you're thinking of the Seeker? Absolutely, yeah. No, the Seeker is... Um, just is voiced by Anna Pansy. There's no doubt about it. And it was a lot of fun. You know, um, Matt reached out to me and he was like, Hey, could we maybe get you to do some lyrics for uh, the next music like video that we're doing? I was like, yeah, I can pump those out. And I Mm. sent it over. And then I heard nothing until I saw that you guys released the trailer and how she just was able to sing certain lines and how she put a emotional, personal flair where she's not just singing, she's acting which mm. is exactly what the seeker is it's a mix of mm. sort of both that performance and the the projection of the characters it was a lot of fun it's a beautiful beautiful performance in both the videos i talked about them a little bit last week but i want to talk a little bit about blackbird who is mm. the wandering merchant that i've contributed to this book uh, along with some some other full on shops but this is one that really is the heart of my involvement in this book to me mm. because blackbird was a character from the first D campaign that i ever played in uh created by my my gm charlie who i then uh kind of adapted into the first campaign i ever ran the first time that transition happened uh that character got a little bit more fleshed out from just like a kind of mysterious uh bird-like humanoid draped in robes who had some neat stuff outside a dungeon 
uh, just a one-off character who I was like, I, I can do something with this. It was something about the way that my GM clicked their teeth, just like whenever Blackbird talked that just like stuck in my mind uh, as like, this is such a great affect. I need to create a full on character based on this. Um, mm. And basically from that first campaign into this book, uh, Blackbird, they've evolved from just kind of a weird little guy into, well, they're still a weird little guy, but uh, <laughs> they now have this origin that you can explore, right? It's, it's these NPCs. You want to give them depth uh, that a GM can take and borrow and use. And so Blackbird is this fey creature that was once a part of the, the shadowy courts of, of the shadow fey who's uh, just like a, a servant at a great manor. I, I imagine very much the the Fey manor uh, in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, where these people mm. go to languidly dance for all eternity. And <laughs> the sort of callous Fey lord of this manse, uh, you know, in, in the endless pursuit of greater power, sold the house and all the servants to a demon of the abyss. And it was kind of cast down into the endless darkness of the abyss itself, kind of from, from this twilight realm into just endless midnight. And so the, the, the Duchess of gloom, the, the demon that took over the mansion, uh, never even noticed that this one little servant, this one blackbird kind of vanished into the walls and started lurking there for untold eons. Who knows how much time passed in the darkness and they've kind of learned and grown and, and changed into this thing, this thing that is fey in nature, but demonic in power. And, uh, you know, ultimately it longs a little bit to get their old life back, but, uh, has now gone to the material plane to almost in a way that it's similar to the seeker, uh, hunt down adventurers, watch them, see their struggles, kind of almost like uh, mentor them through the process of gaining magic items and uh, pursuing power in their own right to create kind of this group that will ultimately help them take back their home from the demon that purchased it. Blackbird's role in a campaign is to kind of hang out around dungeon areas and have exactly the right tools for the job but not the means to use them right it's the players that must use them properly often in kind of oblique puzzle-like ways and we leave this very open to the to the gm but we do give one particular magic item many of these merchants have lots and lots of magic items here's this one i'll just read it for you it's the shadow seekers feather token it's a single raven feather which adorns an obsidian arrowhead and the heart of the arrowhead glows with faint light as if reflecting firelight. And the person who wields it can use their action to throw the arrowhead up to 60 feet, which it then explodes into roiling shadows where it lands, creating magical darkness in a 30 foot radius for a minute. And then as a bonus action, you can transport yourself, teleport yourself into the shadows within which you can see as if they were dim light. That's the most sort of mechanicalized magic item we gave to them. It's something that can be useful, but ultimately it's up to you to decide how it's used. Uh, and its price, rather than being in gold, is within the next 30 days, you must betray a friend's trust. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's the good stuff right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I, I enjoy about Blackbird. I enjoy about Von Kufen. And in fact, these four kind of uh, emporiums and traveling traders that we're uh, kind of using on Front Street um, to whet the appetite is that, uh, you know, the Hedgerow has 
armor based on plants. They're magic items, but there's a very uh, there's a very good theming uh, to them. The seeker is is keeping pets and and these interdimensional creatures. More monsters than magic items, but they fall into either category. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, James, but but the Blackbird, I believe, uh, can deal in contracts as well. Like it's not just a magic item. Um, and then originally with uh, Von Kufen, you know, I wrote a list uh, which was in the template of what I was working with of like a couple of SRD magic items that I was like, oh, powder of invisibility. Yeah, you could probably make that from like crushing fairy wings into powder and then you throw it in the air <laughs> and it makes you invisible. So I was trying to think of like magic items that could be crafted from monster remains. And then we just ran with that idea. And instead, Von Kufen has a couple of magic items that he can sell, uh, including the Eye of the Aether Kindred, which is probably one of my, I didn't think that was going to make it into the book. That's one of my probably favorite magic items I've designed. But he can also just make things from whatever the party bring him. So if they go kill, you know, whatever sort of monster, if they go slay an Etten and bring back the tusks of an Etten, he might be able to make something out of that. Or if they go and slay a dragon and bring back the scales, he can build something out of that. And there's a couple of suggestions in there of what he can build, but it also uh, allows the GM's creativity to to fill some of that space as well and be like, okay, so... You've brought me back, you know, the eyes of a whatever, the eyes of a frogamoth. Uh, what would the eyes of a frogamoth do if I could change them into something else, you know? They would technically dissipate. Oh, do they? <laughs> yeah, a frogamoth exists. The goo, the goo of a frogamoth. Yeah. So, yeah, I appreciate that it's not, you know, there's, I think over 100 magic items will be in the final book, but there's also, um, you know, other things that uh, players can trade in apart from golden items. You've just reminded me, Ben, somehow, I'm, I'm so sorry for this divergence, but you've reminded me of the time <laughs> when I got my, I, I ended up making my siblings uh, turn off eating walnuts for a long time because I was like, they look like little fairy lugs, little giant fairy <laughs> <laughs> They were like, they I can't, I can't eat these anymore. <laughs> that's what you're like. Fairy lungs. <laughs> yeah, no, great. That's that's exactly what I'm going. It's dark fantasy is Grim Hollow, you know. Brains. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The grosser you can make the uh <laughs> the the um the 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 crafting the better. But there's also some esoteric things. Um I, I almost don't want to give this away, so I won't give too many details, but there's a great quest uh that Von Kuven has that I called uh, Lightning in a Bottle. And it's basically like he can craft a magic item from the breath of a Bahia. So the party have to catch the Bahia's lightning breath that he then uses to craft into a magic item. So it doesn't always have to be blood and guts. It can be something, you know, Just more energy. esoteric. Yeah, energy or, or, you know, bring bring me, uh, get a fae to make you a promise and then come back to me and we'll figure out what we can something do Something evocative, that. perhaps even vague. Vague, you might say. <laughs> I'm going to do a video a on vague and evocative, like a video essay on vague and evocative just How so it outlasts you. you. No, it's, a, it's an homage. It's not trying to steal the idea. It's trying to get it out there to more people. Um, anyway. There, there's a whole host of really great designers on this book. Um, and I don't know yet which ones are fully announced, but many of them are people <laughs> who you have seen through other big sort of indie style RPG product projects. Many of them have their own channels, uh, like Logan. Uh, we've got, we've got crit crab doing stuff. We've got, uh, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> Some of them are stretch goals as well, so we don't yes. want to uh, we don't I want to know. give away too much. Mm. Yeah, uh, there I'm, are some I'm exciting individuals. Constantly looking for the sniper dot over my but shoulder. Let me say, you know, <laughs> some some folk that have worked with Ghostfire before have mm-hmm. jumped on, yeah. which is really exciting, and some people that haven't yet worked with Ghostfire. You just have to reach really those stretch goals to, uh, to find out who. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's not live yet. <laughs> <laughs> or it is if they're watching this in the future mm-hmm. and they might already know yeah. um, <laughs> there there are people when you see the list of contributors for this book you will want to like google search each and every one of them because they've Genuinely. done some really amazing stuff yeah. uh sometimes some stuff with us others with other uh projects uh there's some writers from valica who i worked with Mm -hmm. for i think their very first rpg project and i was like these people have got the juice and they need to be on this book um so yeah so much juice today it's all about the juice (laughs) we got juice on the mind dale for those that are obviously being kickstarted there are pledge tiers Uh, i mentioned before the magic item cards which i just you know i love the idea of just being able to hand something to a player and and there it is like that's all uh there um and ready to go um we've also got because these are uh, (laughs) locations we've got uh map packs so that you can just you know open an emporium map and and play the adventure there and then uh something that's really cool is like this dice tower that's pretty big. I think it's like yeah. ten inches big or ten centimeters big. Exactly. I think it's inches. It's it's huge. It is really big. Um, but it's like it is fashioned to look like the Seekers' uh, shop. Basically, oh, I love that. Oh, yes. okay. I, I don't think I've seen anything from that. Oh, have you? Not I, I just seen know it? about okay. the little uh, dice holder who we might be using again in the future. The uh, yes, good old Goo Goo. That one's yeah, really the, cute. The golden Goo Goo. Um, is a, I think that's a 20, uh, 48 hour, like, um, uh, that's uh, what he is. Yeah, I think so. So you get this little golden goo goo that like holds your dice and guards it and and imbues it with good luck. Hopefully, hopefully he doesn't slip away with it. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Interdimensionally. (laughs) And if you ever lose the one that you get, if you do back it in those 48 hours, you know, he just used his power. It's your fault. (laughs) We're we're keeping track. (laughs) Um, I'm, cool, st- I'm going to steal them. That's what I'm saying is I'm going to break into people's houses and collect them. We mm-hmm. just, as we're on stream, we just see like Google appearing in your background, dropping dice and the pile gets higher and higher <laughs> in the background. I'm looking at the pile of dice. <laughs> just sleeping what? on top of it like a dragon. <laughs> Links in description up over there somewhere, maybe that way. Um, Probably here or down. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're right. Yeah, no, you're right. It'll be right yeah. there. Um <laughs> Speaking of uh, cool things that are happening this week, Sean Merwin, uh, who is missing this week, but he uh, stealth released, well, he didn't release it, D&D released it, but he worked on it. Uh, Stealth released a product um, through the Dungeons & Dragons Twitter account uh, is where I see the link for this. Uh, It's called Peril in Pinebrook. It's a small starter adventure, uh, but it is designed for early adopters or people just coming into the hobby for the first time, Uh, school teachers to teach their students how to play D&D. It's very stripped down. Uh, James, it sounds like you took a little bit of a dive into this one if you want to take this one as well. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very interesting little adventure that is basically it's designed not just for new players and you can see that in how stripped down things are i mean monster stat blocks are a name and armor class and attacks and player stat blocks are are similarly concise um but it's it's for more than that it's 
a part of the educator resources that Wizards has created for schools that want to use D&D as an after-school activity, or in the case of kind of the pioneering, uh, or, or at least the, the attention-getting uh, teacher who did this, Ethan Schoonover at the Lake Washington Girls Middle School a couple of years ago, to create classes that wind up teaching things like mathematics and technology and English through the use of D&D kind of as a framing device. Mm. Uh, so, that whole educator resourcing has been passed uh, around a lot. Sean has been talking about it a lot. Uh, Scott Fitzgerald Gray, who is just a, a luminary in the 5e world, has been passing it around a lot. Um, if you are involved, either as an educator or a friend or a family member of an educator, I mean, y- you should make sure they know about this. Not to do wizards' dirty work for them, uh, but this is a really <laughs> cool resource. If you want to do D&D in schools, this is something you should look at, and and it's, it's, a, it's a springboard. And this starting adventure is something that, uh, I don't know, I think has been missing from uh, the beginner D&D sphere for a long time, because even the starter boxes are kind of geared at someone who, in my opinion, gets what rpgs are about already sure. uh yeah. this is for like i mean i think every year wizards tries to go more fundamental and more fundamental with their starter projects and this is it, it's it's fundamental almost to an avant-garde degree right you look at those monster stat blocks and from a 5e veteran standpoint you're like is this it <laughs> like can can we really still call it D by just having like an armor class hit points and and an attack roll can we really call it that and i think the answer is yes to me it feels almost like a like a mobile game version of dnd <laughs> in the sense in the sense that it is like majorly accessible it's very easy to understand and it's a great sort of gateway into the the full experience without overwhelming you know the younger players well, and it's it's simplified to a degree that I'm almost hesitant to talk about it because uh, <laughs> Sean was talking about this with, with us, you know, in in our chat, and it's like I think people will get mad about this if the broader D and D playing population sees about this. It's something that I think almost ought to remain a secret because sure, it should be yeah. in the hands of like educators and people DMing for for children. Alone yeah, it's because not for you, literally, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. you get everything. Yeah, respectfully, if the Grogman Brigade gets a hand of this, it, it will, you know, it, it will be taken out of context. It will be, it will be used as a cudgel to talk about wizards in a way that, you know, I, I like good, honest criticism of Wizards of the Coast. I think it's something that is deserved. This, like, if if someone starts bashing wizards for simplifying D anD D, and they use this as an example they're you know they're either stupid or they're uh, trying to trick you yeah (laughs) right like it's one of those two things excited to be upset about something we're currently fighting strawmen yeah exactly we're fighting strawmen who are fighting strawmen the only way to beat a straw man is with a straw man of your own I mean, they uh, they almost seem to be hiding it themselves because, like I said, I, mm. I'm not sure where to find this. And if you want, it's free. Like, you just go click the link and it takes you straight to the PDF. Uh, and there it is. There's everything uh, that you need in this product, uh, including some great dragon art that's in there, some of which you've seen it before, some of which you might not have actually. I think there's some new art in there, which is cool. Um, but it uh, it's just on their Twitter account. Like, just go to at wizards underscore D&D. 
Um, and it's like a, a tweet from a few hours ago um, is the last from 5 a.m. this morning, my time, which would be, I don't know, like midday, maybe uh, US time somewhere. Um, but but yeah, it's not on D&D Beyond. It's also a PDF. It's not one of their like a D&D Beyond releases that they've been doing where it's kind of a native web page, um, which probably makes it more accessible for teachers and uh, well, I mean, people I working with kids because you... A, a weird thing when you have uh, a very large but very specific audience like Wizards mm. of the Coast or mm. specifically D&D do where it's like, okay, this is a product that is very specifically aiming outside of our audience to try and, you know, bring them in. Mm, but how do you it. advertise outside of your audience when usually your method of advertising just relies on your audience? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like or it's ha- attracted the audience you already have. It's like exactly, mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. And so you kind of end up in this weird place where it's like, I guess we put have they put it on the the like D and D website rather than D and D Beyond? I haven't checked, but that no, would be the would only be thing I can think of to be sense. like. What would someone who doesn't play D&D Google if they wanted to play D&D? What would they Google? What would be the first thing that comes up? Because that's where you have to put this. Apparently, according to uh, Primrose Frost, it is on the Dungeons & Dragons website. So, Hey, you and me, Primrose. You and me. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I would say, like, uh, for everyone, you know, D&D, that's three letters. It's a lot easier to type in and remember than TTRPG. Like, that mm, yeah. does not roll off the tongue. It never has. This is also uh, just a piece of, of fresh, piping hot, out-of-the-oven news from chat. NUCK3 uh, has uh, just let us know that there's been an update on the deck of uh, many things uh, oh. issue, the manufacturing issue. Uh, they've uh, they've announced that they have uh, sort of started production on a new round of uh, the deck of many things. And so for people in the US, it's expected to uh, arrive around January 5th, a little bit beyond that. And if you're in Europe, uh, Africa, sort of uh, that neck of the woods, or if you're in Asia Pacific like us, uh, you're going to see shipments later than that. So that's a little bit of a wait, but at least they've got... Uh, Does- does that mean that they sold more than they were expecting to? No, they had but, issues. They had manufacturing issues. Oh, like they just didn't have enough resources or whatever. No, the, the the came out came out just about yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the yeah, they just were factory. Real unfortunate. Different sizes as well. The cards had different sizes. There were a whole host of issues. Um, uh, my my girlfriend is reading a book called uh, Iron Flame. It's like a Dragon Rider series, and apparently everyone who got that early special edition book, you know, all of them, like they, there was a one of the front pages was ripped out. That's my automatic cat feeders. <laughs> but like um, the binding was bad. It's already co- sort of coming off the back. And apparently that happened to everyone. And that yeah, makes right. me question, like, how does some of that stuff happen in factories? Like, how do you rip a page out of a book in shipping? <laughs> Nick, logistics guy, let us know how uh, <laughs> logistics guy. Um, let us know how that might happen in a factory. Logan, before we talked about Deck of Many Things, you mentioned the cumbersomeness of the TTRPG acronym. And (laughs) I I tend to agree, tabletop role-playing game really does not roll off the tongue very well. And it reminds me of something that I saw earlier this week. And this truly is like a glimpse into the labyrinthine passages of of how my brain works, right? This is completely unrelated. Um, But it was a deep dive into the Japanese TTRPG scene, which I'm constantly fascinated by, right? Call of Cthulhu is the industry leader in Japan. Um, Oh, 
And it has its very own sort of homegrown scene, which, uh, you know, does a lot of fantasy RPGs, right? There's sword art or not sword art online. There is a sword world. I mean to say sword world, mm. which inspired the classic anime record of Lotus war. Lotus war was kind of the first actual play oh, yeah. where they took down notes on their sessions and then made it into a show. Um, but yeah, the, the, uh, Ryutama is another one that's kind of popular here in the Anglosphere as well. But there, there's there were a handful of games on that list. Just like you know, going to my local Japanese friendly local game store. Let's see what indie games are on the shelf. A lot of them called themselves table talk role playing games, which I think is just a misunderstanding of the English phrase tabletop role-playing game, just a mishearing. genuinely could because, be. Because they, it's written in, in Latin script, in English, table talk role-playing game. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, I, I kind of like the phrase table talk role-playing game. I think I the like table, table talk has precious little to do with the way I play TTRPGs these days. Talking is much mm-hmm. more important to what happens. I genuinely, just off the cuff, if I were to rebrand, if it were at all accessible to get people to think differently, I would just call them acting games. Hmm. Like it's simple, sort of straightforward, fixes the concept. You are playing a role and that's acting. So it's just a reduction of the existing title. I don't know if that is bad, but. No, I think you're right. But I think it also loses all the engineers who it play. Does. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. That's, yeah. That's the thing is I, I agree. It doesn't sound that, like a blueprint. Um, <laughs> t- table talk definitely sounds like something that, um, you know, uh, certain game it almost sounds like a genre within tabletop right mm. like uh yeah. even though you don't talk playing alice is missing like alice is missing doesn't use a grid <laughs> like in any context right mm-hmm. or a game like even vampire masquerade i think really de-emphasizes tactical combat for more kind of flurries of violence but but then you go back into uh, the social uh, kind of aspect mm. of that game cool cthulhu kind of the same right um and it, it, you know if i use the analogy across to video games is the difference between a game like, I don't know, Red Overwatch, Dead, Last of Us. which, uh, oh. well, well, Red Dead Last of Us kind of sit in the middle. Yeah. Overwatch is oh, incredibly oh, okay. mechanical. You know, it's, yes. it's almost like th- there's kind of a story there. Their characters are very evocative, but there's no, like, it's just the, the game story is, is the, the mechanics. It's the, f- the action. Exactly. Yeah. Sort of Red like Dead what and Chainmail Last of was, us. I think. Yeah, exactly. Red Dead and Last of Us, I think, sit in the middle where they're kind of like, they've got robust mechanics for combat and you know crafting or whatever it happens to be but there is an unfolding story there as well and like an rpg like boulder's gate or um you know mass effect or something like that has you know choose your own adventure style mechanics Mm -hmm. and character customization but then you go across to things like um and i'm gonna blank on the names of them now but games like um uh, heavy rain that, oh. that studio, oh, mm. uh, Detroit, and become Detroit, human. Become human. Detroit become human. Detroit human. How am I drawing a blank on the name? It's I'm having a pescevu specifically. It's the one where you're a kid who falls down a well and meets monsters underground. Undertale. Undertale. Yeah. Undertale. I, would say that one is I very... had no idea that that was the plot of Undertale. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, Dale, you yeah. should play Undertale. <laughs> like, yeah, I think you'd like Undertale. I think you'd really like Undertale. I, I've is, never played Undertale, it, it has, but something tells me you'd like Undertale. Sort of JRPG earthbound sensibility. Okay, okay. That yeah. Get anyway. Earthbound is even a better example. But well, the, the, the point that I'm making is that, you mm-hmm. know, tabletop, uh, uh, I think if you call it an acting games, yeah, as we mentioned, you'd lose all those people that want those robust mechanics and are less into acting, more into mm-hmm. board games. But if you focus too much on that, you might lose the people like, you know, uh, my partner, my wife, she, <laughs> she doesn't play, she doesn't love yeah. combat that much. 
But then I also have people at my table who don't really like the role play that much and they just want to get into the fight, you know, and you've got to- So what you're saying specifically is that we need to find something between acting games and (laughs) coolmathgames.com. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Right in the middle. Uh, I should also say Alpeggio in chat says, hey, some of us engineers like to participate in theater as well. And you're exactly right. I was just experiencing the flashbacks to the sort of sharks and jets style territory wars uh, during my weekly trivia nights with me and the arts crew versus the engineers. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just, you know, I, that was a very long-winded way of me saying that table talk feels like a genre within, um, or, or you know, whether it's separate or the same as tabletop, but it feels like a, a more specific thing. Um, anyway, uh, speaking of engineering and crafting things, Sean, uh, not Sean Merwin, but a different Sean, listener Sean, emailed, what, what, what email address would he have emailed Dale? He would have emailed podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Excellent. There we go. And he asked a question about, uh, we talked about magic items uh, last week or the week before uh, as well uh, and wondered about rewarding players with magical crafting materials that allow players to craft or commission magic items they want specifically and whether this method provides a greater amount of self-expression for players, uh, a greater amount of autonomy in their, their character build rather than the GM kind of trying to guess at what might work for their character and providing magic items that they ultimately might not want or use that much. Uh, how, how big, and this is an open question for everyone, how big a role has crafting played in your game? I, I could take the helm here because my uh, partner has amassed these like uh, third-party books about like crafting and alchemy. And so, so there's a wealth of resources directing you how to do this if you want to. And I would say if you have the time and the patience and you want to go for sort of this uh, Stardew Valley or MacGyver style game, you Mm. would definitely go with those resources where you're creatively, actively building them up as if you were creating your own spell. But without those resources, I would definitely say uh, personally, that becomes just like a mix of some some players fighting the DM like, oh, I want to be able to do this crazy magic thing and I have the resources. It's. When you have to create a magic item in collaboration with a player who is participating in the game that you're making, you have to have very clear communication or else it's not going to work out for either of you. I, I have a player at my table who loves crafting, but that's something that confuses me sometimes is not just that they want to build a specific thing that gives them a certain amount of power, but sometimes their joy is the crafting itself and yeah. saying like, you know, I'm like, all right, well, you'll be able to craft that in, you know, this many sessions or like this many, yeah. like you need a downtime of this much. And they'll be like, no, I want longer. I want it to take a really long time to craft really? because they want to, because they want to feel rewarded by their, by having constructed this thing. That's so um, cool. Cause candidly, like I, I would say that's my biggest problem with uh, crafting in a game is like, oh, well my players say they want to make a whole settlement. Like how long does it take to build this stuff and how fun is it to wait for that? Like what do you do in the meantime that still validates you committing to building a building? Like it also makes me think of like the the rules is written for crafting potions where it takes like a year. Yeah. It's like why why I didn't write my story to be like this. Yeah. I noticed at some point that my players had a habit of of always being like, 
oh yeah, we just killed these lightning lizards and I'm going to, um, I'm going to cut out its lightning glands. And I'm like, oh, you want to make a thing. I, okay. I see what's happening here. And so ages ago, I ended up, uh, putting together this ridiculous document. This one isn't so much for magical things as just, I wanted sort of, uh, apothecaries and medicine to feel like they didn't have to be magical. So I put together a whole document of, of foraging and crafting rules for um, things like potions. Uh, and I ended up making a video out of it because once you, you know, pump so many hours into a, a thing just for your table, you may as well put it on the internet. And I thought that it didn't make much of an impact, but this year at every convention I went to, someone came up and talked to me and said, oh, I love the foraging that you that you right. did, the foraging document, the, the yeah. Materia Medica. Or, you know, I, I would uh, work with someone and when they posted a photo of us together, people in the comments would say, oh, she uses these foraging rules that I do. And it just made me really happy that it actually, like, people are out there using it. it Can you send joy. that to me? I will. Okay. I'm going to be in the that. vast minority here when I say I could not care less about crafting <laughs> items in either tabletop games or video games. Video games, I can really? tolerate it. I can tolerate it. Like I'm playing Baldur's Gate right now. The alchemy mm. system in that game. Oh, yeah. I've ignored I it entirely. Good. I could not care less. But even, <gasps> even in music games, like my Skyrim, first Skyrim pointless busy work to me. No, I, my first oh, character in Skyrim was, was all about the alchemy. Um... See, so I, was, about the see I, I was too. I did so much alchemy and so much enchanting in Skyrim because I felt like I had to. I yeah. felt like it was a crucial game mechanic and I would suffer if I didn't, but it was never maybe, maybe outside of the first like couple hours of eating ingredients to find their things and finding those combinations. Like it was, it was novel and interesting <laughs> the, the first couple of times. And it was like, this is, this is senseless. Um, mm -hmm. And it's worse in tabletop games. Uh, and maybe this is just me because I like I, I spend work time thinking about tabletop games also, uh, which impacts my hobby time doing tabletop games. So this might again yeah. minority opinion. Uh, sense but it's like the tedium. I, I want the stuff that happens in my game to happen in the game. And if we're doing crafting stuff, this is stuff I'm thinking about out of the game. I'm making all these subsystems that, to my mind, do not improve the flow of gameplay in any way. So, I kind of want to throw uh, a point in there where I like doing it in a very specific way. And I, uh -huh. I was just going to add like sort of a, a chip off point where I like crafting as long as the thing I make isn't a potion. It's something I can use more than <laughs> once because if, if I use it once, I don't care. I'm not going to be clever. Like in games, I hoard 75 health potions and I use them once. True. But hmm. I really like and I found sort of a comfortable groove in playing D&D &D, where between sessions, you'll have a pseudo session with each of the players. And you're like, OK, what are you building? Can you just roll this for me while you're at work like really quick? Just dropping a little bit of extra playing in the meantime and say a week uh, out of game goes by between the two sessions and you're able to talk with the players and do a brief like, OK, this is what you did. This is what you did. Let's get back into the action so that we're not, you know sitting around as I listen to one player at a time tell me how they get like a claw or whatever. V video game crafting is an interesting comparison because I think video, video game crafting is often kind of slapped on, you know, like The Last of Us, I think, kind of has slapped on crafting where it's like, uh, oh, there's a workbench there. Okay, I'll quickly run over and I'll just hold down, you know, X or whatever button I hold yeah. down <laughs> on the dagger till I've maxed out them and then mm. I'll max out my cans and there might be a modicum of thinking in terms of between shared resources going, oh, I'd prefer more explosive cans than daggers, I suppose, like mm. cool. 
but it's not. It doesn't have that monster hunter, as somebody mentioned in the chat earlier, feeling yeah. of like I have killed the owl bear mm. and now I'm wearing the owl bear as a pelt, um, as you That's can cool. do with an owl bear mother in uh, Boulder's Animal Game, Crossing is abysmal. You know, curiously, <laughs> I think the most engaged I've ever been with a crafting system in a video game is in Persona Five. Um, really, and I I only rarely use that crafting system. I probably only used it maybe three or four times my whole playthrough. Just with um, with the weapons, but, or oh oh the Persona crafting. Yeah, no, no, not not, not not the personas I've themselves. That. Though that was fun. No, no, I'm talking about the workbench that Joker has oh, in his bedroom, where you can I make like lockpicks and bombs <laughs> and stuff like that. And I like I yeah. never I used it maybe four times in the game hmm. because it felt like such a a decision to use it. I, I only use it when I absolutely had to. And right. this is where video game crafting gets me. It's like, oh, I'm, my inventory is full of garbage. Guess I should see what I can craft. <laughs> Waste my time for half an hour. All right, back into the actual game. No, this is, I am taking time out of my day where I could be hanging with my friends or eating a burger the size of my body to build <laughs> some lockpicks because I'm in desperate need of them for the next palace. Yeah, like you're preparing for a heist or something. Yeah. You're building to achieve an active goal that is part of an adventure, like you're saying. Like I, when I'm doing a heist, I want to open that like chest. So <laughs> I'm going to spend that time. I, I like yeah. that perspective. So th- this will be to the surprise of absolutely no one. Uh, but uh, a couple of months ago, uh, before Baldur's Gate came out, I think, a couple of months before Baldur's Gate came out, I was playing The Witcher 3 again. And it reminds, like, I think the crafting in that game, if you're into the core fantasy of what a Witcher is, is really strong because I had the this quest that I was doing and by this point I've done it like four or five times, you know, but I still, it had been long enough since I'd done it that I had this real core back to playing the game for the first time experience of investigating a monster's lair, um, figuring out what the monster was before I had to fight it, and then thinking to myself, okay, well, what's this monster weak to? This type of bomb. Mm. Well, I don't have any of those, but I can get this plant from this place <laughs> and then go get that plant to make that bomb to then go back and fight this monster. And it just felt so good because it made the fight so much easier. And I was just mm. like, that is like back to the core fantasy. So I think, you know, I love craft. Like I, I love potions as crafting, even though my players never use them. Um, <laughs> yeah. we, we have a, a joke in my campaign that uh, I, I introduced decoctions, which were meant to be powerful potions with, with a, a, a lesser drawback. So things mm. like you would get dark vision, but you'd also get sunlight sensitivity or you'd become invisible, like but you'd become terrified of light. And so you always wanted to hide in the dark anyway. Um, mm. And we have a joke that every time uh, somebody opens a chest in my game, they're like, oh, what's in there? Is it decoctions? Ah, throw that over my shoulder, get out of here. Um, because they never use them. But I, I love it in theory, probably because of uh, th- those type experiences in The Witcher. You, you've all made so many good points. And it makes me think of things like I realize that in my game, if I have a player who wants to, like who's chosen a ranger because they want to, you know, go out looking for, for Ethelus to, to do the whatever, then I will just not hand out potions because I expect them to go and collect <laughs> stuff and make them. But if I don't have that player, I'll just ignore it and give them plenty of potions and it won't come up, you know, that sort of thing. And, it, you know, there's that balance of like recipes versus, and you're right in Skyrim, it's like I'm only enchanting all of these daggers to sell them at a profit. Um, yeah. But boy, am I going to make a profit? It'll take me two hours, but I'll get there. Um, but it does make me think of, 
the one that is stuck in my head that I've always wanted to make a crafting system based on this, but I never quite, I, I haven't figured out how to make it function. There was a game. It was one of the sort of teen slasher horror games that came out amongst all the other ones, you know, that year that we, we first got like the reprisal of the, the Friday the 13th game and the Dead by Daylight. And like it was all these games came out that year that were all kind of in the same vein. And this one, I, I, I think, just disappeared in amongst the mix. So I don't know what game it was, but they it was it was just this survival horror game where it was like you could basically combine any of the items you had. You just had to get creative with it. So it was like, sure. do you have a baseball bat and also barbed wire? Okay, you can combine <laughs> them into a thing or you can, I don't know, set the baseball bat on fire or like it was it was such a simplified but robust crafting system <laughs> and it has stuck in my brain ever since and i really want to figure out like a DD equivalent of that wait maybe my favorite crafting system ever is tears of the kingdom like i didn't even think of it as a crafting Zelda system Watch. because you don't open a menu to do it but just yeah. the ability to stick stuff to other stuff oh yeah 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 <laughs> and that's crafted not, in such a freeform like way yeah it's not entirely well. Actually, it is quite different. But but this will go go somewhere. I promise. Um, uh, the the Grim Hollow uh, salvage system mm-hmm. allows you to take mm. parts from a monster and craft it into something. Or if it's not the part of a monster, because some things in our monster grimoire are people, um, uh, then you can take like you know they might carry magic items or something that's particular to those people or you know bit of equipment or whatever. Anyway. And I, you know, uh, there's a lot of adapting that to monsters outside of the monster grimoire to monster manual stuff, but it got me thinking because there was like, um, you know, take a monster's claw and when that claw is ground up into powder, it creates potion. And so it's kind of that thing of taking thing, putting it through a thing, and then it becomes another thing. And it made me think, could you do this not with monster salvage? Could I take an amulet of lightning protection put it into a staff and then it becomes like a staff of, of lightning bolts or something? Or could I take a, um, you know, c- could I charge a rod with a lightning, like natural lightning f- during a storm and once the rod is charged, I can use that to craft, you know, X thing in ver- in similar way to um, the way that the salvage works, which is what you reminded me of, James, when you started talking about Zelda. I think those mm, things relate. I, I, I love mm. that idea, but it gets me in like the toxic mindset of, oh, well, if you can take gemstones out of circlets or like rings or watches or do whatever, couldn't you just have some psychopath who has a staff with like a bunch of gems embedded in it and all of them serve the purpose of an individual magic item? I think Thanos was trying to do that. Yeah. More, yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. He was a little stinky. <laughs> I, I had, I had something similar to that, which it was like it's these kind of crystal orbs uh, and each of them did something different. Um, hmm. And you could achieve, there were seven of them in total, like the dragon I, I balls. I forgot about the ion stones. Um, Is that in 5e? Did they get rid of mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no they're still in there. there. Oh, okay. You could have them floating so around long. your head. Yeah. They're great. I love, those. I love ion stones. Um, I love that this whole conversation has just been all of us and chat simultaneously confirming that there is no consensus on crafting, yeah. <laughs> whether it's good, whether it's bad, how it should work. None. No consensus. Well, let me, let me, we so. can tell now definitively that's why D&D does not have an official crafting system because yeah, Wizards wants to make things that make most people happy. And I don't think yeah. there's a way to do that with the crafting system unless there is a genius game designer out there who can somehow thread that needle. Chill. Yeah. We need an Einstein. <laughs> With an iron stone. 
<laughs> you know, back in third edition, you lines. bring up materia, Ben, is actually, it reminds me, there was a system very much like that in 3.5, where instead, I don't even remember what book it was in, but instead of having magic items, there were magic gems, and you could socket them into mundane items to enhance their mm, power. Right. Yeah. yeah it was like, like a combination of materia and Diablo. like World of Warcraft socketing, basically. Well, we yeah, actually yeah. have this in um Valica. I, I read this the other week. Is mm. we have runic mm. magic in Valica. And mm. the idea is that certain runes mean certain things. It's in um Raider's Guide to Valica. Look forward to that coming soon uh, for those who backed it. Um and if you carve that rune onto an item, like it says like if this rune is carved onto a weapon then this weapon becomes a fire weapon, you know, and does mm-hmm. extra damage. But you can also, I'm pretty sure, get that rune as like a tattoo and it'll do something different depending on what that rune is placed on, which I thought was was very cool and kind of is similar in terms of like socketing, you know, gems onto mm-hmm. things to create new effect. Um, it goes you know, back to it, just the basic concept of enchanting. Yes, like you're enchanting yeah, exactly. with scripture almost. You have the 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 like uh, Chinese symbol tattoo down the spine, but it's all like you know tattoos of uh, of runes. They give you different magic mm. powers. It'll be great. Yeah, which is also kind of in the Giants book that D and D released not too long yes. ago. Yeah, there you go. And it's in Sunken Isles. The tattoos, great minds. Magic system for those. Um, and it's in Tash's, isn't it? Doesn't does Tash's have? <laughs> Tash's is interesting because the tattoo pen is like an item. Mm. So right. it, oh, yeah. it has a physical component, which is then kind of spent in the creation of the permanent tattoo. Gotcha. It's got uh, to fit well, the paradigm, man. <laughs> I hope, uh, I hope, Sean, we answered your question. Um, uh, uh, yes, it would give uh, players more self-expression, but it's also super hard to do. Um, <laughs> and also, and I only slightly took this question because of this, um, the other way that you can provide players with self-expression through choice of magic item is to visit an enchanting emporium and let them choose the magic item for themselves as opposed to thing you found in dungeon. Uh, and we're out. Uh, if hey. you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, we are back 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific every Monday, uh, 10 a.m. Tuesday, Australian Eastern Daylight Time uh, currently. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, do the likes, subscribe, all that stuff. We really appreciate it. We appreciate people coming, joining us on Twitch to chat with us. Uh, comments on Spotify because I turned them on. All the things. Uh, noises. Um, don't forget about Enchanting Emporiums. There's a link down there. My name's been Ben Byrne, joined by James Hake, Dale Kingsmill, Logan Reese, and we will catch you all again uh, next week. Babada, babada, babada. Babada, babada, babada. Good show, lads. Good job. Good show. Good show. I don't know where Dante. We're still alive, as far as I know. I don't know.